pediatric speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk's podcast. Today, we're continuing our series with the 11 prelinguistic skills that all toddlers master uh, before words emerge. And again, let me say one more time, if you've been listening to this series, I know you're going to think, boy, she just says it and says it and says it. These skills come in typically before a child is about 12 to 15 months old, and this is what makes language development Um, typical or typical development and so even kids that are late talkers or have to master these same skills and so don't say something like well this kid's apraxic so they're not gonna have this skill or this child has whatever the diagnosis is they're not gonna have this skill that is not true these skills are pulled from how language emerges and again it doesn't matter if a child has uh, delays or a disorder or whether they come in on time. These are the skills that, again, make language emerge. So I wanted to be sure uh, to mention that point again. And another thing that we've been doing at the beginning of all these podcasts is running through this list of 11 skills. And this is so that you, especially for you therapists there, And especially if you're a speech-language pathologist, you should know these prelinguistic skills and you should be running through these. I saw a little guy yesterday for the first time and I sat there and that's the sequence of questions that I asked this mama. We went through this list and we talked about what, how how this little guy was doing with these kinds of things. And so this is your beginning. So even if you're not going to use the checklist that's from my therapy manual, let's talk about talking that really outlines all these pre-linguistic skills, you still should know these things just so that again, you can be the most effective speech language pathologist or other early intervention professional that you can be. So let's just run through these. So number one, responds to events in the environment. What does that mean? That means a child notices what objects are doing. Number two, we bump it up to people. How does a child respond to people? Does he make eye contact? Does he try to find you? Does he, does he, when you're talking to him, does he, uh, respond, which is the key word here, to you when you try to interact with him. Kids who isolate and ignore and avoid or who try to escape all the time are not mastering this skill. And so responds to people. And it's so important. And it's one of the skills that I've just kind of hung my head on professionally. And it's, it's what I talk about almost more than anything. Because getting a consistent social uh, response or that social interaction and engagement piece going is the foundation for communicating. I mean, why else do we learn how to talk? Communicating always involves at least two people. And so it's such a foundational skill. So even if our little guys who you're seeing who you suspect autism within the very first visit, you have got to get a handle on helping them respond more consistently to people. Otherwise, all your efforts to talk about the rest of these skills, all your efforts to talk to teach them how to talk and everything. Every other skill that you would teach them, null and void, unless you can get them consistently interacting with other people. All right, number three is an extension of that. It begins turn-taking. So not only now are they responding, they're continuing in that back and flow uh, connection with you. So there's that reciprocity piece. Number four is an extension of that. Uh, how their attention span do they stay with you now do they focus on even from skill number one those objects can they focus on an object or something that they are doing 
for a longer and longer and longer period of time. So that was number four. Number five is so important because it's that next little level of attention. It's joint attention. Can I not only now focus on an object and focus on you, but focus on both of you at the same time? So can we share an experience? Can we both look at and talk about and stay with the same thing? Number six is what we talked about in the last show, and it's plays with toys, a variety of toys, both, um, again, variety and appropriately are our key words here. So not just that a kid knows how to do one thing, that he can only play with toys where he maybe uh, pushes buttons repetitively, but can he perform a variety of motor actions uh, with toys? And does he like a lot of different toys? Is he interested in lots of different things? And again, our little friends who go on to be diagnosed with autism often have uh, obsessions and fixations, and that comes directly from uh, the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual there. So that's not just uh, an unkind word or characterization that I'm making up. That's, a, that's really diagnostic information here, where they are really, really just kind of stuck on what they like, on their preferences, and it's very hard to direct their attention to other things. And so they may play with trains for, you know, seven hours a day, but if they can't play with other things, there's something going on there. So we want that variety here. Number six, Seven is what we're going to talk about today, and again, but with, along with social skills, I talk about receptive language, which is the seventh prelinguistic skill, almost more than I talk about anything else, because children have to understand words before they can use those words to communicate. And again, some kids will really talk, and they're pretty echolalic, they can say a lot of words, but there's not very much evidence that they understand. And, and we're going to talk about this in a minute when I get through with this list, but I really, with all my heart, believe that receptive language delays are just the most overlooked delay in early intervention. And every time I say that in a live conference or a live event, therapists kind of cheer <laughs> because they know it's true. So many parents and so many pediatricians really miss that in kids. They just think that when kids aren't following directions or aren't uh, identifying things on requests like body parts or uh, again completing those simple requests they just think the kids being stubborn or being bad without really realizing there is a developmental issue here. It's not that that child doesn't want to follow that direction. He can't follow that direction because he does not understand what all those words mean. And so that's what we're going to be talking about today is receptive language. But let's get through 8, 9, 10, and 11. Number 8 is the vocalization piece so that a child vocalizes purposefully and intentionally. And if a child isn't using his voice, He's not going to talk, right? So that's that's uh, skill number eight. Number nine is imitation. <coughs> Excuse me. How well does a child imitate not only words, but all the skills that lead up to words? So actions, you know, and with objects, body movements. How does he imitate actions with his mouth, those nonverbal actions? Then we bump it up a little bit. How does he imitate play words and little sounds like animal sounds? And then we move it up even more. How does he imitate words in highly contextual routines? So automatic speech. So things like ready, set, go. How does he imitate all of those things leading all the way up to verbs or uh, words? So again, imitation is such an important piece there. Uh, skill number 10 is an extension of that, especially back at the beginning. With gestures, how did he imitate gestures? Now we want him to use those gestures himself or spontaneously and frequently to communicate a message. So can he do things like shaking his head at yes and no? to uh, respond to your questions. Can he wave bye-bye? Can he point to let you know what he wants, especially in the absence of words, or to supplement his verbalization? So can he use some gestures to help you understand 
what he wants there. And that's such an important indicator for language delay because gestures always precede words. Unless there's some big kind of motoric impairment going on where a child's cognition is still intact, we're always going to see gestures come first. So it's such an important marker. And again, not just the ability to imitate the gestures, the ability to initiate those gestures too and to perform them on their own to communicate a specific message. Now, uh, skill number 11, I just kind of gave it away. It's initiation. So how does a child take the lead in communicating? How does he let you know what he wants by something he does first? And this always starts with the nonverbal action and then the kids learn how to do with words and actually all of these skills begin non-verbally that's what we've talked about this whole series here and that's why we are spending 11 weeks and with the beginning show here 12 shows on talking about free linguistic skills because it can give you as a therapist or you as a parent so much valuable information so many times when children are late talkers or when there is a bona fide language delay or disorder that can be really, really quantified, meaning it's not just a little lag here. You know, a kid is six months, 12 months, 18 months behind. We know that it's not usually just an expressive language piece. There are other things that are going on. And so that's what this series of podcasts is here for. And that's what this whole therapy manual, let's talk about talking, all 337 pages is here for. It's to help you identify what are these little prerequisite or pre-linguistic pre skills that are missing because unless we address those skills, the child is not going to talk. Or if when he uh, starts to talk, his progress will just be very scattered or very slow. <laughs> and so sometimes we wonder about that. We can teach a kid a word or two and then they're just kind of stuck and they don't move on. It's because there are other skills that are missing. So if you are a new speech language pathologist or perhaps you are switching back to pediatrics after you've been with older children or uh, in geriatrics, which really isn't even the same job. If you are coming back to this population, you have really, 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 really got to just make yourself understand how critical it is to help a child acquire these skills. And to help a child acquire these skills, you've got to be able to teach his parents why they're important. And so that's why, again, we've taken 12 weeks and 337 pages in this therapy manual to help you really own this information. Information. So let's move on and talk about skill number seven, which again is receptive language. And in the book, I've called this understands familiar words and follows simple directions because so many times when you ask a parent, how well does your child understand language? They say, and if you've heard me talk, I use this example all the time. Uh, and therapist, if you have worked more than two weeks, You've heard this too. When you ask a parent, how does your child understand language? They always say, he understands everything. When that, a lot of times, it's just, it's just wrong. <laughs> Children aren't understanding it. But parents, because we expect children to just absorb language like little sponges, and, and typically developing children always understand much more than they can say, we carry that out and, and overgeneralize that to our little guys with language delays too. And so we're not realizing the significant gaps in their ability to understand language. And so sometimes when you ask a really general question like that, you don't get an accurate response. So you need to ask things like, how well does he follow directions? And when they say, ah, uh, you know, or sometimes, or uh, sometimes I'll, I'll say that to a parent and they'll say, well, he does pretty well, or he, you know, he can do it. And I'll say, well, give me some examples. And then they'll say, well, and then they can't really come up with anything. 
And that's what lets me know, gosh, they haven't really thought about it like this before. And so you start to give them some examples. Or here's what I like to say. I'll say, what are some things that he does for you without a doubt? I mean, what are some things that you can say to him, do this, and he always does it? And lots of times parents have to really sit there, and they, then they start to really realize, gosh, he's not really doing very many things for me on request. And sometimes a parent will say, well, he doesn't do that because I don't ask him. That in and of itself is a problem, not only because the parents aren't giving verbal directions, you know, that's a problem, but a lot of times, why aren't they giving the verbal directions? Because the child is still developmentally, on, on some level, letting a parent know, I can't do it. That's beyond my ability to do. And so the, the parent is still really, sometimes with children who have had their first birthdays or even their second or third birthdays, still really treating them and reacting to them like they are still infants and doing everything for them and not really, you know, really overreading their cues where a child might whimper a little bit and a parent immediately without really even giving a child a chance to try to communicate something independently, they're just in there with what they think they want. And and let me just say, we don't ever want to tell a parent to be non-responsive. We, we don't. <laughs> we want every parent really reading their child's cues and really anticipating a child's needs and knowing what they want. But that doesn't really do anything to let a parent or to let a child have an opportunity to begin to communicate so a parent is more aware of what they realistically can and cannot do. And the same is true with receptive language. When parents aren't giving a child routine commands to follow, uh, there's usually a reason for that. And it's not that the parents are, again, over, that, that it's not anything that's solely because of the parents' interacting style or hovering or helicopter parenting, whatever you want to call it. There's something that's let a parent know, he can't do that yet. He's, this is unrealistic for him. And so you've got to kind of tease through all that too. Okay, so what I said before, I still want to repeat it again, especially if you're a parent and you've just discovered this series on YouTube. Receptive language is so important because a child has to understand words before it comes first, before he can use those words to begin to communicate. And so let's talk about just some basic kinds of everyday commands that children who are toddlers should be able to do. And let me just say, if a toddler is not able to do these things by the time he's 18 months old, there is a problem. And if you have a two or a three-year-old who's not doing these kinds of things easily, Frequently, there is a serious developmental issue going on. And receptive language is such a big marker and such a big separator for from children who just have a little lag in language development, kids who are who are just a little lighter on talking versus children who again have a more serious developmental issue. And so anytime a child is having difficulty understanding words, commiserate with his age we know that it's much more than light talking. And that's what we have to talk to parents about too as therapists. When we see a receptive language delay, we gotta just go for it and talk to parents and say, this is serious. The reason that he's not saying very much is because he doesn't understand very much. And I know that you might disagree with that and that you, you might see some things differently than me, but he is not processing and understanding language as well as we would expect a little boy of his age to be doing. And so when you put it like that, parents start to really get it. And then what else are you doing by saying that? You are prioritizing that parents focus on helping a child understand words before he begins to say words. And so you're really setting the stage for a nice um, 
like I said before, a prioritization so that parents really get, I have to work on this piece so that I can get to the talking piece. And they understand it a lot more. So let's talk about some common things. So these are the questions that I ask parents. So if you were coming to my office, if you're a parent and I were seeing you today, this is what I would ask you. I would say, does your child look when his or her name is called? And if they say, sometimes I say, you know, kids can typically do that by the time they're a year old. So you know, I'm getting, I, I'm worried. I'm worried. We got to figure out why he's not doing that yet. And that does set a parent on alert, but I want a parent to be on alert, not, not just so distraught during the assessment that they can't participate, but I want them to know what a big deal this is and that this isn't just, hey, I'm going to take my child to the speech pathologist or she's going to come see me three or four weeks and this is going to all be over. You know, this it's it's November now, you know, here currently today. They're going to think, oh, by the first of the year, we'll have this taken care of. That's not usually how it happens, particularly when there are receptive language issues too. So I want them concerned about, and I, concerned about it. And I really do say when I'm seeing a two-year-old, or a three-year-old, and I say, how does he respond to his name? And they say, uh, not consistently. I mean, I really right away say, gosh, that's a big problem. That's a big red flag for me because children uh, usually do that very consistently by their first birthdays. And so we know that there's some issues with here with how he's responding and how he's understanding language. And so again, it sets the stage and I think it's a super, super important question to ask. Another big marker here is that uh, children who, with autism, toddlers with autism and preschoolers with autism, and even those kids who have red flags for autism who are not at the, the you know, they're still kind of subclinical, meaning that they have a few quirks, but nobody's really ready to give them that diagnosis yet. But it's a marker. It's, a, a, again, just as important as receptive language we talked about before really separates kids that have language delays uh, from kids who are just light talkers. And so we have to really think about that in terms of, you know, what are these specific skills and not responding to your own name is a big one. So you've got to really be sure that you're talking with parents about that. Another thing that I ask is how does she uh, turn toward her parents when somebody says, where's mama or find daddy? And if they can't do that, that's also another big marker, that, that receptive language. And sometimes parents will say, well, he's not paying attention. He's too focused on the toy that you're using. I get all that, but a two-year-old, even when I'm playing with them, should be able to stop what they're doing. When I say, hey, where's your mama? Where'd mama go? They should be able to stop and look and find mom and even then get right back to it. And so, again, that kind of goes along with that difficulty responding to people. But a lot of times there's a receptive language component too because the child has not been as responsive to people as they should be. So that social engagement piece is missing. So you, can you see how all these skills really cascade? So when you have a kid who's not consistently responding to people, most of the time he's also going to have a receptive language delay too because that prerequisite skill of listening and, and really focusing on what another person says or when another person talks to you is missing or severely diminished. And so that they naturally aren't gonna understand words as well as we would expect them to because they missed that first little component. All right, another question that I ask is, uh, what does the child do when you say, give me something that he's holding? Now, if you say to a kid, uh, like my glasses case here, give me that case, and he does this, he still understood you, right? Even even if he didn't have your hand out. And how do you know? Because he responded. Even if he didn't do it, he still 
<laughs> he still responded by saying, uh, no, I don't think so, right? Even without words. And so you've got to really talk to parents about that. That's another good one, too. And why is this so important? Because give me commands with or without that gesture emerge before a child is one year old. And so when we have a two-year-old that we're saying, give that to me, especially without a handout, we know, oh my goodness, receptive language is such a problem. He doesn't get that. And so, you know, you're looking way back. Sometimes kids are, like I said before, a whole full year behind with that, a full 18 months behind with that when they're two and three. And so you've got to really talk to parents about that. How many body parts can he point to when you say, where's your nose? Show me your hair. Find your teeth. Can he do that? If he's about to do something that's off limits and you say no, does he stop? And that's kind of like the question that we were asking with the glasses case. When a child is doing this, you know, oh, he understood me and he doesn't want to give it to me. Or when a child, when you tell a child not to do something and he still is looking at you like, I, I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> he understands that. And you can see that because he's gauging your response too. And so those are, are telltale signs as well. Can a child bring you familiar objects when you ask them things like, hey, I don't see your shoes. Where are your shoes? Go find your shoes or go get your cup. That, or find your book, or where's the ball? Those are really things that a child should be doing every day from the time they are 18 months and older. And so when you see a two-year-old who's not, it's a really big deal. And again, even things that are a little less obvious. So when you say things like, are you hungry? And a child runs to the kitchen, you know that she's understood that. Or when you say, oh, it's time to take a bath. They should run to the bathroom or go to the bathroom. Or again, protest like, oh, I'm not ready to quit, ready to stop doing this yet. Uh, I'm not quite ready for that bath. I'm not ready to move on. And so again, they've let you know by their response that they've understood you. And so that's a really, really big thing that we have to talk to parents about. Unless we have evidence that they understand us, we can't give them credit for that. And and why is that? Why, why you know, this kind of flies in the face of that presumed competence movement, which again, I think is great because you are really wanting to give on one hand, I think it's great because you're wanting to give children full credit for things that they can do, that they may have physical limitations to not let you know. But on the other hand, unless we really see them do it and we, we assume, oh, she understands language and we don't ever focus on that and we skip on and we start to work on higher level things like talking when she doesn't understand what the words mean, her progress will be completely stalled because we're working at a level that's too high for her and we never give her the opportunity to learn it because we don't teach it we think she already knows it and so we don't we don't focus on it like we should we don't give her the cueing and the extra support and the additional strategies that we could use to help her learn to understand language so that's why it's so dangerous to overestimate what a toddler or a preschooler understands when we know that our language delays because they will miss out on the opportunity to learn it. And you may struggle with a child for weeks or, you know, months before you get to the point that they can start to really make some progress because you're not working at a level where they can be successful. So as a therapist, you have got to hone in on receptive language, even when the parent and or the doctor is thinking that this is just an expressive language issue, you've got to really, really, really thoroughly assess receptive language and make sure that there are no gaps because even a small, even a minor delay in receptive language can really, really limit a child's ability to learn how to talk. When a kid has a receptive language delay, he always has an expressive language delay. 
because even if he's saying words, you know, we have to think about our little friends with autism who are echolalic. And even though they can repeat everything you say to them, there's a big difference in what they can actually do or how well they how well they perform receptively and so again that's not using language effectively they can talk but they can't communicate so we have to really really talk to parents about that and make sure that uh, parents understand that and especially when there's that 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 gap when there's an expressive language when when their expressive language skills are higher than their receptive language skills we know that that's a, a common marker for autism, especially in toddlers and preschoolers. And then you don't keep working on expressive language with those kids. You back up and you work on receptive language. And I have done that so many times where I've just had incredible success with children because they're really echolalic and really, really focused on and, and everybody's been focused on that expressive language piece without uh, making sure that they have a foundation. And so when we go in and really shore up that foundation, expressively, they're really going to take off. And pragmatically, oh, gosh, that's the biggest thing, is they start to use words. And they, again, they're communicating. They're not just talking. So it's such an important uh, part to make sure that we are sharing with parents and that we as therapists that that's what we're focusing our efforts on and designing our treatment plans around is that receptive language piece all right so we've talked a lot about so far why receptive language is important what an important develop important developmental marker it is for children and how it really does separate kids who have just that expressive language or like talking piece versus kids with a more serious developmental issue. So let's move on now and talk about strategies. So what can we do to help toddlers who are having difficulty learning what words mean and to uh, follow directions? First of all, we have to talk to parents about being open to changing how they interact with and talk to a child. And a lot of times, some therapists will balk at this, and parents a lot of times do, and a lot of times it's unfortunately dads. And they'll say, well, I don't really want to simplify what I'm saying or change a lot of what I'm doing because they've got to live in the real world, and why make it easier on them now when a child needs to understand adult language models, so why would I want to modify and just all the blah, blah that we say. Guys, if there's a problem with learning how to understand language and follow directions, we've got to modify and we have to simplify so that we get, again, get to a level where a child can be successful. And so talk to parents about that. A lot of us who are therapists are naturally uh, chatty. That's why we picked this field. We love words and we love hearing ourselves talk, right? And so <laughs> you've got to talk with parents about that too. And, and as a therapist, you've got to really make sure that when you are talking with children that you are simple enough and that you are modeling uh, modified language so that a parent can hear that and, and this is particularly true when children when toddlers have receptive language problems they're not getting it the regular way so we do have to make some modifications and some uh, some ch some changes in how we interact and talk with that child a big thing that we need to do with these kinds of kids too is something that I've really emphasized in lots of the skills that we've talked about so far is that that parents need to stay with their children and talk with them and interact with them all day long and not really let children check out and we talked about how kids with uh, responding issues so kids who have social interaction issues often do have pretty significant receptive language issues because again they haven't gotten that foundational piece of responding to people and so it's harder to respond 
to, or it's easier not to respond when no one is there for you to respond to. And it's easy not to understand language when you're not hearing language very often because mom or dad are busy with other kids, with work, whatever they're doing. And the, the toddler's just kind of fends for himself for a lot of the day. You cannot let that happen with a child with receptive language delays. You have got to be with them and talk directly to them on a level that they can understand all day long. So you have to make some modifications there as parents. And so therapists, you have to help parents understand what, what they can do about that. I saw a family this week that they, you know, that we were really, really, really talking about how um, we can change that and what really realistic things they can do to get away from screens, you know, four or five hours a day. Or what can we do when the child is in childcare and we can't really control everything that goes on in a childcare setting? You know, what are some things that we can do while we are at home to make sure that we are addressing this, uh, not only the receptive language piece, but the social connection piece. You know, we have to be in their faces. They have to be with us as we move throughout our homes. Even if we're doing household chores, they still need to be with us so they have that opportunity to hear language and link meaning and, and uh, begin to follow directions and things. Another thing we need to do is focus on the kinds of words that a child is hearing. So we have to focus on words that a child can use during everyday activities. So that's going to be different for different families. Different families, you know, will have different cultures and different priorities. And so, you know, for me, living here in central Kentucky in the foothills of the Appalachians in a very rural setting, words like horse and tractor really matter. <laughs> Kids see those things. But if you live in Chicago or New York City or Atlanta, those words may not be as useful for a family. So what I like to do is really get a family to write down all the important people and uh things that a child likes, favorite foods, pets, favorite TV shows, or whatever they watch. You know, a lot of times moms now write YouTube videos and you have to say, well, what kind of YouTube videos do they like? And so you have to really go through that whole list of favorites. And why are you doing this? Because you want to make sure that a parent understands what those keywords are and that her child likes this. So this is, they're motivated. So this is a natural target, especially uh, receptive language wise, in addition to all the familiar things like, uh, where's your diaper? It's time to change your diaper. Go get mommy a diaper or things, examples we've already given. It's time to eat. So what, what do you want to eat today? Let's go see what's in the refrigerator. Those kinds of things, you know, in addition to these daily routines, we need to have these favorites. And the reason that this is so important too is because we know from research that when children learn language, receptively and expressively, they learn nouns first, so names of things. So this is going to really give you your core vocabulary. And sometimes we as therapists start with what we think is a core vocabulary list, and we're pretty good at that because we specialize in communication. But there will always be some individualistic needs and preferences that we need to address for families. Like if a toddler likes, I had a kid one time who loved ice. He just craved ice all the time. Now, ice isn't a vocabulary word that I would have included for, you know, 95% of the children that I worked with initially. But it was really important to this little boy. He liked it. And, of course, he probably already understood it. But sometimes kids don't understand words for things that even are their favorite things. And, and we have to, again, make sure there's not a gap there. After we look at those initial nouns, we need to think about the other kinds of words that come, come in. Again, this isn't just uh, expressively but receptively too. So they need to understand next 
a variety of action words or verbs, and then prepositions or location words. And so we need to think about, does he understand really simple things like eat and jump and sleep and drink and run and go? All those early action words, even things in the context of uh, everyday activities, wash, push, pull, open, shut, go get, give me, find, all of those really common action words that we just take for granted that a child understands. Many times toddlers with receptive language delays don't understand those, those words, and so we have to pay particular attention to teaching them to understand uh, verbs. Same thing with prepositions or location words. Words like in, out, on, off, up, down. Even even more generic words, uh, uh, prepositions like here and there. Uh, you know, and again, you can kind of think about those in even additional word classes. But those location words are super, super important. And when we put together nouns with those verbs, with those uh, prepositions, we're really getting that core vocabulary going so that children can consistently follow directions. And so that's how you want to explain that to parents. Now, how do we teach all these new words? Toddlers learn by doing. They really, I mean, hands down, they are going to learn best from a real person in a real activity, much more so than they would ever, ever, ever learn from a book or an educational show, or any kind of screen time. So, or computer game, an app, anything like that. So real life always trumps a screen or always trumps a device. So you have to talk to parents about that too, so that they really, really understand that we've got to help, we've got to put all of these words in context so that if we're focused on teaching action words or verbs, they've got to get up and do something. You can't just, you know, get your little, uh, as a therapist, you know, that example we always give, you can't get your flashcard set of verbs and really expect a toddler to learn it. You've got to demonstrate it. So instead of teaching kick by looking at a picture of uh, a child kicking, you want to kick a ball or kick a balloon or wh whatever you're going to kick because that, that experience, real-life 3D experience, will always, always be more effective in teaching that child how to understand that word. And so beyond those nouns, and then we've talked about verbs, and then we've talked about location words, there are other kinds of words too. Possessive words, so pronouns like me and mine and my huge words for toddlers because we know that developmentally that's where they are they're pretty possessive and so to teach a word like that again super super important because uh, they have to learn it receptively first so that they can use it expressively they can defend their own possessions they can they can instead of biting a child at daycare even you may think as a parent it's uh, unpleasant for them to jerk a toy away and scream mine, but that's a whole lot better than biting a friend or hitting or or using the toy as a weapon against a child. And so you really want to uh, think about that and think about why we're teaching these words too. And remember, it always comes receptively before it uh, comes in expressively. So pronouns are really, really important for that. Descriptive words and parents always go to colors. Uh, you know, there are a lot more descriptive words than colors. And so words like hot and cold and dirty and clean and words like easy and gentle, especially when you have a child that's really busy or kind of uh, prone to aggression. You want to be sure we're teaching those kinds of words. 
Words like hungry and sleepy, even other words like soft and hard and loud and fast and slow, all those rich, rich descriptive words. We want those words to come in, but I tell you, I, I've given you kind of a list in a sequence of how we teach word classes too. And sometimes we start these descriptive words too early when a child doesn't have other kinds of words. So we need to remember that too, especially as their best to really think about that. Let's not go for modifiers like, you know, adjectives and adverbs when a child doesn't understand lots of different verbs and many different prepositions. And again, how do we know that he understands it? He demonstrates it, so he's following lots of directions with that. Other words that we teach, um, other kinds of quantity words, and again, that goes beyond counting, beyond one, two, three, words like all and more and one and none and some, those other kinds of quantity words that are really pronouns too. And of course, those social function words, and then and beyond that, an expansion of common nouns. So things that maybe aren't as familiar, but that uh, everyday things that, uh, and maybe not even everyday, but less frequent, but familiar things that, that children should know. And let me say, I'm not giving the word list out because I don't just want to sit here in a show and read this list to you, but you can get that from Let's Talk About Talking. Uh, and, and get yourself a really good vocabulary list, especially if you're a therapist and you're sharing this. And again, don't think about this just as an expressive kind of uh, resource for parents. Think about it receptively so that when your kids who are struggling with receptive language and struggling to learn how to follow directions and consistently, consistently attend to and follow through with verbal requests, Giving parents a list is always a good idea so that we have some kind of benchmark to shoot for. And I've had parents that get kind of fixated on this and they'll, I'll go back, you know, if I'm doing a home visit or if they're coming in to see me, they'll bring me the list and they'll, they, you know, maybe mom has circled the words that she knows her child understands. I love that. I love it when a parent can quantify progress like that. So these, these lists that we give parents, some parents do just chunk them and, you know, it's, they're throwing it, you know, it's almost, sometimes you can almost think, I bet I'm going to find that list out here in the parking lot. <laughs> or I'm going to dig in this mom's purse two weeks from now, and that list is going to be on the very bottom. Sometimes you'll have a parent like that, but a lot of times you won't. I mean, they really appreciate the information. And unless you tell them, they don't know it. And we do have parents that are out there searching for things. And if you are listening to this show via podcast or you are watching this on YouTube, you are an exception for a parent who's really out there trying to find information. A lot of times we as therapists will see parents who never do anything beyond uh, take their child to therapy or arrange therapy services for them. But you know, guys, that's even above and beyond parents who do nothing. You know, kids who show up at kindergarten with hardly any language. And so always think about that and think, what can I provide for this parent? Now, you don't want to overload a parent if you know that a parent you know, there, there are parents who have written all these therapy manuals. There are, there are parents that I will give a whole therapy manual to because I know that that's what they're ready for and they're going to use it and they're going to uh, implement these things. But there are parents that I just, you know, we're, we're on the handout level. And then there are parents that I'm just not even giving a handout. I'm writing <laughs> the three or four things on a little note that I want them to do. And so really gauge that. But there's so many parents that I think that we underestimate and that we, because of whatever our own preconceived 
uh, opinions are about that and we don't give them enough information we don't give them enough tools so be sure that you're doing that and especially with a vocab list vocabulary list and especially for receptive language things you might think about that as a recept as an expressive strategy but it's a receptive strategy too all right words not to teach we do not focus on pre-academic words like shapes colors letters and numbers when a child doesn't have an established core vocabulary I talk about that all the time and if you need some extra uh, extra information about that go to teachmetotalk.com and search you could even search something like shapes colors letters and numbers you know that would come up uh, if you search that because we don't need to focus on academic words like orange and triangle when a kid can't say mama or can't go get his shoes and so always keep it functional and those words are important as the child becomes a preschooler but they've got to have a foundation to build that on uh, first and there are some children especially our little friends with red flags for autism who naturally gravitate toward those kinds of words because why I hope you know why because they have strong visual preferences they have auditory weaknesses and strong visual preferences so they like things they can see and that information makes a lot more sense to them and is a lot more interesting than things they can hear and that's how you explain that to parents when you have a child who is obsessed with numbers or obsessed with letters or colors that's what you say you say well no wonder that's his learning strength but we learn most things initially by listening to somebody else so we've got to get these this language comprehension piece or this receptive language piece shored up so that children are going to be able to function in a regular kindergarten setting or a regular preschool setting so that they are going to learn by hearing not just by what they see or by what their own little uh, self-driven preferences and so that's what you talk to parents about that too okay other strategies that we want to be sure that we are teaching parents is to talk about things that are in the here and now uh, and so that means that a, a mom may they may have a big trip coming up for um, Christmas holidays and that's fine to talk to your child about that but if he's sitting there eating his breakfast and he has a receptive language issue mom is going to do a lot uh, better <laughs> by focused by focusing on the yogurt or the cereal or the drink or whatever he's paying attention to right now because that's his best shot at linking meaning with things that he is currently attending to so some moms are better at that than others and and will um, not we'll, we'll kind of get that that we need to keep things you know really focused on where his attention is but some moms that are really kind of chatty patties like we therapists are will need reminders about that uh, one way to really help with receptive language when we're teaching a new word is to emphasize that word by including it at the ends of phrases so this is a really important strategy that we as therapists a lot of times we do things that we don't necessarily quantify when we're talking with parents and so this is one that I have started really talking to parents about in the last several years is put those keywords at the ends of phrases because that's where you leave a child so things like go get your passy find your coat you're ready to play with trucks or cars or something with the kid and you realize they don't have the you know the truck you say find the truck instead of I wonder where your truck went I wonder if where you left that yesterday when we were playing with that together and again you want a kid understanding that eventually but when you know a child can't follow directions you've got to simplify and break it down like this and so that positional um, 
that that paying attention to the position that that keyword is in that key vocabulary word your target word is putting it at the end will highlight it so talk to parents about that remember when we are helping a child learn how to understand new words we want to be sure that our cues are effective and I've talked about this a lot in the podcast, maybe not recently, but tell him, show him, help him is the very best way to keep a child to do almost anything, whether you're working on receptive language, which is what I coined this uh, tagline for was um, in 2009 when we did our receptive language series, Teach Me to Listen and Obey on DVD. Uh, tell him, show him, help him is how I was really teaching parents how to do it. And so that is a great way, not only for receptive language, but for articulation, if we're working on a new sound, you know, just, just for anything. So tell them is the verbal cueing piece. So we are telling a child what to do. We are giving that auditory information so that he can hear us. If he can't do it then, we need to show him. So those are our visual cues. So we're pointing, we're directing his attention. We may be holding up an object that we're talking about. So that he can link meaning with that and then lastly is help him so that physical assistance piece and if you've never heard me talk about that uh, go to teachmetotalk.com my website and and you might even put in receptive language or go to the blog section and click on receptive language so that you can pull up those articles or better than that get yourself teach me to listen and obey one and two on dvd so that you can learn how to teach parents these cubing strategies and I'll just tell you, in this last 10 years, parents repeat this line to me, tell them, show them, help them. They repeat it to me all the time because it, it, it has just become so naturally ingrained in them. And how we did it is we just worked really hard on this in therapy. So I would say, okay, he's not doing what we're asking him to do, so how are we going to teach him? What are we going to do? We're going to tell him, show him, and help him. And we walk through that, and so parents get used to that. And I've had moms say, that's how I finally got his dad to start doing, really helping me with this and start really doing what he was supposed to do is I taught him, tell him, show him, help him. So it was an extremely effective cueing model if you don't have one that you routinely use. And so be sure that you're talking with parents about that and what that means and how that looks. Another strategy we want to do here is really allow a child plenty of time to respond to our verbal directions. And a lot of times, you know, I'm kind of hyper. And so <laughs> I'll just sort of jump in, even with my assistance or with my help. You know, I move on to showing and helping a lot faster sometimes than I should. And so I have to really remind myself, wait wait and sometimes we think about this with expressive language we'll model a word that we want a child to say and we're going to kind of wait him out a little bit but we don't always give children time to respond receptively like this so many of our children with receptive language delays just have naturally slower processing times and so we want to speed that up but we've got to before we get there We've got to help them understand more words first and consistently respond, and we do that by allowing plenty of time. Now, not so much time that they you lose them, that they forget what you ask them to do, <laughs> but you do want to give them that extra time to process. So, especially when you have parents, you, kids live in loud households, or there are lots of other children, or when parents are distracted, and so you want to really help parents learn how to build in that processing time and get more more silence so that a between when they ask a child to do something and then 
waiting a little bit to give a child time to really process and understand and then begin to follow through. Another thing we want to do is set up these frequent opportunities for a child to demonstrate that he understands. So parents should be giving directions and making requests of their children verbally all day long and sometimes again we talked about at the beginning of the show that parents aren't doing that because instinctively they know my child can't do that yet but you want to teach a parent how to do that so lots of the things that you do in a session should be focused on not on helping a child say words but on giving him time to follow directions and really practicing that so in play with a toy you're saying things like, put the ball in the hole. Oh, you, you need the hammer. Where's the hammer so you can hit the ball? Great, there's the hammer. Now hit it, hit the ball. Boom, boom, boom. And so naturally, as ther speech therapist, you might have been totally focused on having him say ball and request, make a request for the hammer or use an exclamatory word like boom, boom, boom in that example rather than focusing on how is he... Uh, responding to my directions here is he listening to me is he following through and again when you talk to parents about understanding words sometimes using a keyword like listening really helps them helps the parent understand because they'll say well he understands but he never listens <laughs> you know that's not really true right and so you've got to really again use words make sure what you the words that you are using your terminology your jargon when you're talking to your parent that it becomes important to them and so you're using whatever word would, would be most meaningful for them and so for a mom hearing a word like understand may not and follow directions may not even mean as much to them as you think it should but if you say does he listen to you oh now you've got her <laughs> because she says no he never listens he never listens to me and so help a parent really again understand that you're talking about the same things but you use a word that's more meaningful to the parent at first all right the best strategy that I can teach any parent to do to help a child with a receptive language issue at home is to learn how to do their part so the child is doing his or her part during everyday activities and again for parents who aren't naturally inclined to give a lot of verbal directions this makes a lot of sense to them so you sit down and you talk with them about things that they do every day and you might have something like you know, I've had parents write this out, like at breakfast time, what are the two or three commands that I'm going to help him learn how to follow at breakfast? And then if they have, you know, getting dressed after that, what are the two or three little commands that we're going to focus on every morning when I get him dressed? What are the two things that I'm going to ask him to do every day so that he consistently learns how to follow through with that and if you need some suggestions for that get let's talk about talking so that you can get some ideas here but for the most part you can figure out with the mom you can say well a good thing for him to do might be to uh, find his shoes for you every day when you're about to get him dressed so some things that you can do to help that are to put his shoes in the same location every day and so you're going to start out by telling him go get your shoes and then you're going to say remember that tell him show him help him model then you're going to show him, you're going to point to where his shoes are. If he can't do that, if he won't go get his shoes, or can't go get his shoes then. And you'll show him. And then if he still can't do it, you're going to help him. So you're going to pull him over there yourself. You're going to walk over there with him to get his shoes. And you're going to make this a part of your routine every single time you are getting him dressed to leave your home. Because that's what it's going to take 
for a child with a receptive language issue to really start to learn what those words mean and to follow directions. And so children who've been very, very self-directed and again, I'm talking about mostly our friends who have red flags for autism, but also just our little guys with mixed receptive and expressive uh, language delays who, who are having some noticeable gaps in how they understand words and link meaning to words. You've got to help them with this structured teaching and, and not that I use that. Structured teaching is teach. It's a whole, a whole set of strategies that we use to teach play. I mean parents who set up really definitive teaching times <laughs> during their daily routine. So when you do that, when you walk through this, when you say at breakfast every day, I'm going to ask him at the end of the meal, give me your cup or put your spoon in the sink. And so you get these little commands that parents work on all day every day that is super effective and once they've mastered those things parents usually say oh give me more of that that worked or a mom will say to me hey you know those things we were working on he's doing that so great that this week i started working on this and i love it when that happens because the parent then is taking ownership and she's driving the boat now <laughs> she's realizing oh this is my next therapy goal this is the next thing that i his mom can teach my child and so you really want to empower parents with that but you have to get them going at the beginning and really, again, don't leave this to chance. Don't say something generic like, I want you to take every daily routine that you do and I want you to sit down and think of two or three things that you can teach them every day and then do that and let me know how that goes next time I see you. Don't be that uh, willy-nilly about it. Be intentional. Be focused. Write it down with the parent. Or better yet, you know, sit there and let mom write it down so you, you're saying with her, let's walk through this that's what the intention was when they redid the ifsp form for early intervention programs or birth to three programs years ago when we went to that ifsp model where we started instead of just asking a family what do you want your goals to be we really started looking at a family's day and and looking at how they move from activity to activity or from the beginning of their day to the middle and we started looking at what families really really do that was the intention is that we focus on this kind of thing and so we need to do this with receptive language and say what are the two or three directions or i call them parts what are the what what's going to be her part every day in uh, when you guys are going to clean up the toys every day, what are what are the things you know? If a, if you if mom has a is a stickler about a clean house, <laughs> and you know she's got the older kids doing their little chores, what chores can the toddler do? And again, not listed on the chore chart on the fridge, but what will mom ask him to do? And you, she might say, "Oh, I don't know. I don't know if he's going to follow these directions." And you say, "Well, he loves books. He looks at his books all day long. So let's start with that. Let's start with." Uh, you know, get your books or put your books on the shelf or put your books in the basket or whatever it is. So really help parents prioritize that based on what's important to them and those familiar words in those everyday routines with, um, with their kids through those routines at home every day. All right, don't be concerned too much about over-directing or disrupting the flow of a play routine with a toddler or how a, how a child kind of... Um, 
just naturally hanging out. Sometimes a parent will say that, but most often it's a therapist. They'll say, you know, I'm playing with the kid and I just feel weird about telling him, put the car in the garage or give me the daddy or let the mommy ride, drive the car. And they'll say, I feel like I'm interfering. I feel like I'm being too disruptive. Let that go. As parents, we tell kids what to do all day long. That's how they learn everything. <laughs> and so as a therapist, don't be afraid of that. And so especially, again, you know, you might be making the shift from focusing mostly on expressive language with all your kids to backing up with a lot of them and focusing on this receptive language piece. And the only way you're going to do that is by giving verbal directions. So be sure that you're thinking about that. And, you know, when I'm playing with the kid, if I'm just – you know, that's called observing <laughs> when we're not giving directions or when we're, or, or, or assessing. That's not therapy, right? When you are uh, really letting the kid kind of run the whole show, you know, as a, as a therapist, especially when you're working on receptive language, don't worry about giving too many directions. Be sure that you're doing that. If you're sitting and you're playing with a little uh, pretend house with them. You need to be saying, where's the baby? Get the baby. Oh, look at her. Her hair is a mess. She needs to brush her hair. Where's the brush? Let's brush baby's hair. And then when you're finished with that and, and the kid is about to, you think that they're going to, you know, put the baby in the bed. That's great. But then once they've done that, say, oh, the baby's cold. What does she need? I think she needs a blanket. Get her the blanket. Always be sure if you feel like that you're over-directing or if a kid is balking too much and he's trying to escape and avoid or, you know, he gives you the, the toddler cold shoulder where he's hunkered down over the toys and doesn't let you participate, then you might say, well, I'm going to let him do every two or three things. I'm going to let him do what he wants to do and then I'm going to put that direct that other, my direction or my idea in there. I'll tell you what else this helps. This really helps with flexibility. And so many of our little guys who have sensory issues or who have red flags for autism have those issues with flexibility. And so giving these directions also doesn't, uh, it just gives them more opportunity to learn to be flexible. And it helps them again with how they're going to perform in preschool. You know, little guys can't always direct the show and even though we want children we want to follow children's leads and we want them to be motivated so we're paying attention to what they want to do i'm not saying that we stop that altogether because we certainly want to give kids choices when they're having difficulty with transitions we want to say would you rather do this or this because when they they can make a choice they have some ownership with that they have some power they're they're more likely to want to do something else so they're more likely to want to move on but with our little guys who are having difficulty with transitions, and especially the ones who have difficulty with transitions and who have receptive language problems, you've got to give them a lot of direction so that they, again, are learning how to, how to understand words and link meaning with that, but also learning to be more flexible in that they've got to listen to what people ask them to do and then follow through. And sometimes parents, you know, they do this with the best of intentions. They're not giving a lot of directions. One, they want to avoid the meltdown and avoid the fit and the recovery. They think, well, it's just going to be a lot easier for me to not ask him to do something and just let him do it how he wants to do it so that we don't have the have the meltdown and the tantrum and the recovery time and I'm all about that in therapy I would much rather avoid <laughs> that kind of problem 
But at the same time, we've got to build this flexibility in and we, oh my goodness, when it's coupled with a receptive language problem, you absolutely have to do everything that you can do to help a child learn how to follow directions. Okay, so I'm going to give you some examples now of some great activities and we're almost out of time, so I'm not going to be able to tell you everything that's in Let's Talk About Talking or every strategy that you could do. But you can all, you know where to find that, right? And let me say too, the other uh, great resource that I have for receptive language is Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual, because it lists all, every goal, so every milestone from below 12 months, so really, I've, I've really looked at that six to 12 month period, so those earliest receptive language goals, all the way up to 48 months, so all the way up to four. So I took every milestone and looked at that looked at that goal and then looked at how therapists can teach it in a session if you are fortunate enough to still be able to work directly with children <laughs> uh, how you can teach it in a session and then the homework piece so what can you uh, teach mom to do at home that would help a child really really master that goal so that's a good resource too but these little activities here and let's talk about talking again are directed to children at that pre-linguistic or earliest phase so in that early uh, 12 months 12 to 18 months so what are some things that we can do and let me just say too if you are listening to this series of shows and you think well i don't have any kid on my caseload who's 12 to 18 months all my kids are two or three I'm talking about developmental age, not chronological age. And if you're a therapist, you certainly have thought about that. But talk about this with parents. You know, if a child isn't talking, it doesn't matter if he's three or 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 18 months. He's still pre-linguistic if he's not talking. So these are the same kinds of activities that you would be doing with them. So activities where you play name games, where you are uh, helping them learn how to identify their parents, like a where's mama game or a hide and seek game where they're finding daddy. And these little give me games, or again, I call them retrieval games, <laughs> where go get your, go find your. And I do this a lot, even in therapy, especially if I have had kind of a chaotic day and I haven't, and a kid is, again, maybe just busy, 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 and I haven't stayed on top of, we're going to clean up every toy, which I try to do. You know, we clean up one activity before we move on to another one. But sometimes you just have these days, whether you see a kid at home or you see them in your office or you're in a classroom where you don't do that. And then, then when, it's, when I notice that there are lots of toys out, I think, aha, I can play a retrieval game here. So I can play a go-get game. So I can say, go get the ball. We've got to clean this up so we can do something else. We're not going to do anything else until this. We can't have snack until this is cleaned up. Then you can do the go get the ball, go find the baby, uh, where's the car. You can do that kind of thing. And those games are so fun for families. I mean, I've structured entire therapy sessions around this with families at home with, with helping moms see how easy it is to incorporate receptive language practice into so many things that they're naturally doing. Reading books is a great time or doing puzzles. We usually think about those as expressive activities, but oh my goodness, what a wealth of receptive practice we can get in that. So before we sit with the child with the book and say, what's that? What's that? Tell me this. Use it receptively first. So find the car. Where's the dog? Show me the mommy. Which baby is crying? Show me the baby that's crying. And you can really bump it up too. You can even do things like object functions. You know, which which one goes on your feet? Which one flies? And again, those are higher level receptive language things that we did not talk about today because 
we're looking at kids who are in this pre-linguistic phase. And so again, if you're thinking as a therapist, oh, I like those activities, but I wish I had something a little higher, uh, Teach Me to Talk, the therapy manual is going to be a great resource for you. All right, learning body parts. There's some great little tips for that in Let's Talk About Talking where we sing some little songs. And music, again, is su such a great strategy for kids with receptive language issues because we know that there are some differences with how they process and even alert to auditory information. So when we give them something different, and if you're a parent you don't have any clue what I'm talking about, I just mean you change how you sound. So when you're singing to a kid, a lot of the times kids who tune out language are going to listen when it's more sing-songy and when, uh, again, there's music involved. All right, so that's it for receptive language. That was our seventh pre-linguistic skill. We want kids to understand familiar words and to follow those directions, and I hope I've given you some good ideas to get that going. That's all for today. Next week's show is so great because we're going to talk about how to help children who aren't noisy, learn how to vocalize intentionally, and I hope you'll join me for that show. That's it for today. Thank you so much. I'm Laura Mize, pediatric speech-language pathologist, and this has been TeachMeToTalk.com's podcast.